Take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 4. Appreciate the choir being here both services this morning. And uh, after the first service, we instituted that song for this service. We just felt the Lord was leading to do that. And uh, amen. You know, it's uh, interesting when you think about that song. Uh, the Lord is the source of our strength, and the Lord is the strength of our life. And, and you understand and know that, that we believe that God is in the business of giving us the strength to make it day after day after day. And yet we live in a time when more and more people are concerned about what's happening in our lives. You know, the 20th century was called by some uh, an age of anxiety, or some people called it an age of unbelief, and some called it an age of depravity. And we're only nine years, almost a decade, into the 21st century. But what is interesting is they're already coming up with names for the 21st century. And the one name that appears over and over again as people are describing what this century is about is that they're calling it the Age of Fear. And it's not hard to understand why if you turn on the cable news. I mean, they disgorge tragedy every hour on the hour. And just in our daily lives, they're talking layoffs at work, showdowns in the economy, flare-ups in the Middle East, turnovers at headquarters, downturns in the housing market, upswings in global warming, breakouts of Al-Qaeda. It's almost as if we're injecting danger with steroids. They tell us things on television like a gallon of gas may soon cost more than the vehicle we're driving in. Or that some demented dictator is collecting nuclear warheads like other people collect fine wines. A new strain of flu seems to be infecting someone every day. And the plague of our day, terrorism, begins with the word terror. News programs give enough hand-wringing information to warn an advisory caution. This news report is best viewed in the confines of an underground bunker somewhere in Iceland. It's everywhere, isn't it? I took a hunch this morning, although it was a pretty good hunch, that, that I sent Coat before the first service, just told him, make sure you pick me up a Tennessean from today. I didn't look at it, but I knew what the headlines would be about. So I just took the front page and thought we'd scan through the headlines and Tennessean. We're going to skip this Tennessee part, all right? We'll just move right all over that, although fear is what many of us are feeling today for the rest of the season. But if you look just in the headlines, the first one, how did swine flu kill a healthy boy? TVA is having meetings about the spillage and some things that they're going to do with rates, but they're going to close that to the general public. We might not be able to handle that. Japan's got a popular affordable health care, but there are things that you have to give up to be that, and they're warning us about that. White House wants to talk, focus on, wants talks, to focus on Iran's nukes. Uh, the governor of Illinois is uh, under news again, and one of the guys that was the main guy in that is no longer alive. Public gloom despite financial sector's rescue. This panel, there's the continuation of that story, is going to meet in private. Uh, there's a hate crime bill that needs to be published because hate crimes are on the increase. Film exposes town's annual dolphin harvest. School book ban raises concerns and fears. 
Doctors hope tests show more about swine flu. And then on the back, missing student not seen on video. Every page of our news is filled with something to be scared of. Max Lucado in a new book called Fearless writes, We fear being sued, fearing last, going broke. We fear the mole on the back, the new kid on the block, the sound of the clock as it ticks us closer to the grave. We have sophisticated investment plans, elaborate security systems, and stronger militaries than ever before. Yet this generation depends on mood-altering drugs more than any generation in history. One person has said that ordinary children today are more scared than the psychiatric patients of the 1950s. It seems fear has taken a hundred-year leash on the building next door and set up shop. It's oversized, it's rude, and it's unwilling to share its heart with happiness. So happiness complies and leaves. And here's the problem. Fear never wrote a symphony or a poem, never negotiated a peace treaty, never cured a disease, it never pulled a family out of poverty or a country out of bigotry, and it never saved a marriage or brought a business back from ruin. Instead, what fear does is it hurts us into a prison, shuts the gate, locks it, and throws the key away. And yet we know as followers of Jesus that God does not want us to live a life of fear. Mark chapter 4, starting in verse 35. That day, when evening came, he said to his disciples, Let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you even care if we drown? And Jesus got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. And the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Now in just a moment, we're going to talk about three things that I want you to see from this story. But the first thing that I want to ask you is the question that Jesus asked at the end of that story. And that is, why are you afraid? Or what are you afraid of? It's kind of a personal question because the truth is many of us never share our fears. And so this morning as we begin to allow God's Word to speak into our hearts and take away the myths that sometimes are taught and fill it with God's truth out of Scripture, I want you to think about, dwell upon the question, what am I afraid of and why am I afraid? And then we're going to talk over the next few weeks about leaving a fearless life. I mentioned Max Lucado's new book a minute ago, and this is actually the graphic from the cover of it. I just love the graphic. And one of the things that I would encourage you to do if you want to kind of dig deeper into this subject is to go pick up a copy of that book and read it over the next six weeks as we talk about this. But this is what I love about that picture, is that it's just simply a simple pier with a boy who is recklessly diving into a lake. Now, would you consider what he's doing a reckless dive? I would, yeah. I mean, look at him. He's got his snorkel on, but you know that snorkel's flying off as soon as he hits the water, right? And the way that he's going to go into that water is not going to feel very good, right? 
When I was growing up, we used to try to have contests to see who could do the best belly buster, right? I don't know if that's what you called it. That's what we called it. And he's a pretty good start there. What I love is he doesn't care. It's just carefree and fearless. And there are many times in my life when I feel like God calls me to this great, reckless abandon of a life, and yet instead of jumping with everything I have into it, I'm scared and I go step by step. The truth is that most of us were in that picture. Instead of jumping like that, it would be a picture of us dipping our toe in the water. So why are you afraid? Three things I want you to see in this story this morning. First of all, I want you to notice the unsettling storm. Notice the unsettling storm. Starting in verse 35, he just says, That day when evening came. Now let me just tell you about this day, or actually the days that were ahead of it. And the story is also told in the book of Matthew. And when you look in Matthew, you see Jesus had had a very busy few weeks. We have this this part in Matthew chapter 4. This story is told in Matthew 8. But in Matthew chapter 4 is when Jesus is tempted. And he comes out of the temptation, succeeding and successfully putting away the temptations of Satan. And he begins to go out and teach and heal and minister. And it says his fame grew throughout Syria. And it grows to the point that he starts attracting these large crowds. And so Jesus decides to go up on a mount and preach. And he does an extended session of teaching that we have recorded for us in Matthew chapter 5 and following that we call the Sermon on the Mount. And he starts at that in Matthew 5 with the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. He continues through there with things like, uh, you've heard it said don't commit adultery, I say don't even look with lust. Uh, You've heard it say this, well I say that. He starts expanding the law. He finishes that whole discussion with, you've got to do now what I've asked you to do. And so the disciples understood it was an action that was required, not just intellectual assent. And you get out of the Sermon on the Mount, and he comes down from the mountain, and he gets down from the mountain, and there are more people with more crowds for more healings and more teaching and more ministering. And he goes from one place to another with more teaching, more healing, more ministry, more teaching, more healing, more ministry, more crowds. And before long, he just says, I need to get away. Now, I don't know if you have ever felt that way, but I'm sure you have. And I'm not talking about a vacation. Because I know that there are times on vacation when I say, I have got to get home to get some rest. Amen? I'm not talking about vacation. I'm talking about getting away, retreat. And Jesus says to them, let's go over to the other side. Let's get away. Because he knew that whatever else could happen, the crowds could not follow him on the water. Now, some could, but not the crowds. And so he gets in the boat and he starts to head to the other side. Now, I don't know what you ever imagined those boats to be like, but I had a wrong impression of those boats growing up. I thought they were pretty big boats. Well, you know, they've unearthed in the last few years some boats over around the Sea of Galilee that they date to the time of Jesus. And this is an example of one. Now, of course, the steel metal part was not around back then. But you can see inside of it. Now, that's not the whole boat, obviously. Time has done some things to it. But the next picture shows a reconstructed version of it. This is the boat that they got into, and I couldn't confirm, but that looks similar to what the Sea of Galilee would look behind it, and so that may be the Sea of Galilee behind it, a similar kind of boat they get in to go. Now, what I notice about that boat is it's completely open, right? 
Now, one thing I want to point out for a little bit later in the story, and it's not that this end over by me, do you see, and some of you probably can't, but there is a little thing that you can tell is kind of a shelf built, and there's some space underneath it. Okay? That's important for later, because that's where we'll find out Jesus is sleeping. But you can see that boat is just kind of there. And it says in Scripture that they get in the boat and they go to the other side. And as they're going, there were, I just love details Mark puts in here. The others they took along with him just as he was. They took Jesus in the boat. Other boats were with them. And it says in verse 37, A furious squall came upon them, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Now the words there are pretty good because it tells us about this furious storm that suddenly comes. See, the Sea of Galilee is a beautiful body of fresh lake water. Anybody ever been to the Sea of Galilee? One or two? We had more in the first service. Anybody not been to the Sea of Galilee? Let me see your hands. All right. Me too. Neither have I. I'd love to go someday. But they tell it that it's just a calm, most of the time, a calm, peaceful lake, if you will. Six miles across, 13 miles long. Usually, like I said, calm and peaceful. But if you can see in the picture, and it's not the Sea of Galilee, perhaps, or it perhaps is, but there are mountains that surround the Sea of Galilee. And as the mountains surround the Sea of Galilee, what can often happen is storms, when they get kind of moving around there, it can act like a funnel to trap the storms in, and suddenly they intensify quickly, and just suddenly a huge storm will erupt. Let me ask you, when did this happen? The story that we're in, when did it happen? What time of day? Evening, right? So by the time they get here and the storm comes up, it would have been dark. So just imagine for a minute you're out in that boat. And I don't know what the first sign would have been. Perhaps it was a bolt of lightning that struck somewhere on the lake. Maybe it was some in the sky. And suddenly the sheets of rain start to fall. The waves begin to buffet the boat until it says here in the Scripture that the boat was almost swamped. That's not a word we used a lot, but I think we know what it means. In fact, Matthew, in describing this storm, looks into his Greek vocabulary to come up with the exact word to use, and he doesn't use the word for rainstorm or little storm or thunderclapper or any of that. He uses the word seismos. You might recognize that word. I don't bring Greek stuff out very often, so... Anybody recognize seismos? What's a seismologist? Earthquakes, right? And the word that he chooses is seismos. You think, well, maybe back then they used that to talk about a thunderstorm. Actually, Matthew only uses that word three times. Once here to describe this storm. The second time he uses it is over in Matthew chapter 27 when he says Jesus died and there was a seismos that happened at Jesus' death. And then in Matthew 28, when Jesus rises again from the grave, it says that the graveyard had a seismos event. So Matthew, when he's thinking about what kind of storm this was, you have to understand, Matthew was a tax collector, spent most of his time on the land. And so for him, this would have been major. And they're in the middle of this unbelievable storm. And Scripture says they were scared. A couple of things I see from this that you might just think about is, first of all, storms can come even when Jesus is with you. Some Christians sometimes get saved or people that are early in their faith and they say, 
now that I'm a Christian, I shouldn't have any problems. No storms. One person came up to a guy and said that. Now that I'm a Christian, it's the end of all my problems. And he says, you're right. It's the front end of all your problems. Amen? Storms are going to happen, and even if you're walking with Jesus and Jesus is in your life, storms will come. The second thing I know is that some storms you can do nothing about. These guys had experience in storms. They were fishermen. Now, apparently they weren't very good fishermen because every time we see them, they're not catching anything, right? Right? But they're fishermen. And they would have been out on the lake and they would have been there and these things are buffeting and it's to the point that they can't handle it anymore. And the truth is there are problems and storms in our lives that sometimes we can't handle on our own. Chronic illness, rebellious children, marriage failure, financial ruin, consequences of personal failure. Maybe in your life you are dealing with or have dealt with one of those storms that is just completely out of your control, no matter what you do. I was thinking about my boys and my soon-coming daughter. And I was thinking, if there was anything in my life that I could do to ensure, make sure that when they grew up, they were going to be two boys and a girl that passionately followed Jesus with all their heart and always made the right decisions and did what they were supposed to do in following Him. If I could, in my control, do something right now to make that happen, you better believe I would do it. But I can't. I was thinking about my diabetes. If there was any way I could do something right now and not ever have to worry about insulin again in my life, you better believe I would do it. That's why when I go to the doctor, I say, are there any trials out there, anything going on? Can I sign up on a list and the newest technologies? I want all that stuff, but the truth is that I can treat it, I can take the medicine, but I can't get rid of it. You ever had one of those storms that no matter what somebody says, it's the wrong thing because they don't understand. And you're not being mean or upset. It's just, it's your storm. And it's so real and personal and internal that nothing, nothing can control its power. The problem is when those kind of storms hit our lives, they often lead directly to fear. When you notice the unsettling storm, I want you to notice, secondly, the settled Savior. What's Jesus doing while this is happening? What's he doing? He's asleep. Look what it says in verse 38. I just love this. Jesus was in the stern, that's underneath where they kept the nets usually, sleeping on a cushion. Now, I love that Mark puts that in there because it just gives us a little thing. One, one interpretation or translation of that says sleeping on a pillow. It wasn't a nice fluffy pillow. It was a leather bag, sand bag, basically. But it still shows intent. This was a premeditated nap. I don't know about you, but there are times in my life when I fall asleep, and I don't mean to fall asleep. Some of you are experiencing that right now. There are times when I'm on the couch watching a game or watching a show, and next thing I know it's like three hours later. Anybody, anybody ever been there? I just want some support this morning. All right. But whenever I grab a pillow, I intend to take a nap. Amen? 
if you see me grabbing a pillow, that means don't bother me for a little while. And so when Jesus prepares and gets the pillow and puts it there, maybe it was there already, but the point is he planned on sleeping in that stern. And he went to sleep. He went to sleep. He was exhausted. And he goes out. You've heard people say, I could sleep through anything. Jesus at this moment is sleeping through anything. And the contrast is obvious between the terror of the storm that is raging on the outside and the calm of the Savior that is settled on the inside. And what is showing there is, what is meant to be shown by the Scripture, is that God is in absolute control no matter what our outside circumstances may say. And so he's asleep. The disciples should have seen that. They should have followed his lead. I mean, Jesus had told them where they were going and they could learn to trust his promises. He was with them and he was asleep underneath. Nothing should have made them scared. But that leads us to the fact that they were. And that after you notice the unsettling storm and you notice the settled Savior, you must answer the Savior's question. Verse 39. First of all, in verse 38, and we'll come back to this in a minute, he's sleeping and the disciples wake him up saying, Teacher, don't you even care if we drown? One, one version of that says, Don't you care that we are already dying? Not that we will die or that we might die. They say we are in the process of dying right now. Don't you care? He got up, verse 39, rebuked the wind and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. A better translation of that really would be, knock it off. Calm down. Just imagine that. Jesus stands up and looks at the waves and says, knock it off. How many of you have ever yelled that at your children? You see your hands? How many of you wish your children would respond the same way the wind and the waves responded? Right? I remember when I was growing up, I had a brother who's five and a half years older than me, and we used to wrestle. I know that's shocking, boys wrestling, but it happened. And when we moved to our new house, the second house we lived in on St. John Street in Dyersburg, Tennessee, if you're ever driving by there, just wave. We had an upstairs that my brother had in his bedroom. And when we would go upstairs and wrestle, Dad could hear it on the bottom floor, even though for some reason we forgot that every time. And Dad would just open that door and yell, Knock it off! That's basically what Jesus does. He wakes up, walks to the boat, looks at the wind and waves and says, Knock it off! Now here's the cool thing about that. In the Jewish mind, the sea was the place where evil and God met. And when a storm like that was raging, they thought it meant that evil was up to something. And so when Jesus looks at him and says, Knock it off. In fact, he uses the same words he would use to call a demon out of a person. He's saying, I'm in control. Quit it. The wind died down, and it was completely calm. I know that there is no variation of silence, that silence is silent and it always is silent. But if silent could ever be more silent than silent, this is more silent. You ever been somewhere and it's loud as can be and you're talking with a loud voice and suddenly everybody stops talking but you and suddenly it is silent. 
Well, imagine this. They're in the midst of this amazing storm. It is a seismos kind of storm. And Jesus says, quiet, quit it. And immediately it's calm. And it is silent. The disciples, in a little bit of shock, because I don't think they ever thought Jesus could get up and calm the storm. I think they thought Jesus could get up and start bailing with buckets. Jesus looks at him and says, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? I saw this this week, and I liked what it said. It just said, while we cannot stay out of the storm, the storm must stay out of us. I mean, look at their question. They say, Jesus, don't you even care? It doesn't feel like sometimes when you're in the storm, the question you want to say to God is, God, do you even care what's going on down here? Do you even care about me? Do you care about my situation? It seems like you've abandoned me. When you look in the Psalms, you see David over and over again, how long, O Lord, will you wait? How long, O Lord, before you come? Do you even care, God? And Jesus gets up and silences everything, and then he just looks at him and says, why do you doubt? Why do you have a little faith? You see, what I forgot to tell you is that in James, I mean James, in Mark here, right before this passage, is a whole set of teaching on faith. About how important faith is, about what faith is, about how little faith you need. And it basically what he's saying is, you've got to have faith if you're going to make it through life. And then we come to a place where Jesus intentionally goes to sleep, where God brings a storm, and we have a pop quiz on the disciples' faith. One thing I learned in my life pretty quickly is God likes to give me pop quizzes on things I think I'm learning. And so we have this teaching on faith. The disciples, I can imagine, are going, Amen, preach it, brother. That is good stuff. I mean, that, that is good. I, mean, we, I know it. We've got to have faith. We've got to be the good soil. We've got to be like a lamp on a stand. We've got to have just a mustard seed to succeed. Preach it, Jesus. And then they get out on the lake, and the storm comes. And if he were grading, they would get a big, fat F. They didn't pass. Now, at least they went to the right spot, but they weren't going because of what they thought he could do. They were just getting him out to get out, and this guy's asleep. He needs to be helping You see, a storm in our life, either it's going to be in me or it's on God. And what Jesus is saying, don't you trust in me. And what happens in this story is that they focus so much on the storm that they forget about their commitment to the Savior. And I don't know about you, but there are times in my life when I focus so much on the storm, I forget about my Savior. 